The Ovos did not have it easy. Avram Avinu, at a very tender young age, his father gave him over to Nimrod to be killed. He then had to escape his father. Sarimenu, for 90 years, couldn't have children. Rachel, Rivka, Leah, if you look through the life of the Avos, the Imos, they didn't have it easy. But if you study the life of all of the Avos, it would seem that the one who had it the worst was Yaakov Avinu. And as an illustration of what his life was like, in the very first Pesach in Parshas Vayichi, Vayichi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim Shana. Yaakov lived for 17 years in Mitzrayim, and then the Pesach tells us Yaakov lived 147 years, that was his life. And about the Dasakanim, Balitosis on that Pesach says, Vayichi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim is actually a gematria. Vayichi Yaakov is the life of Yaakov. Vayichi, if you do the math, the Vav is 6, the Yud is 10, the Ches is 8, the Yud is 10, you get 34 years. The Gematria of Vayichi is 34 years. The life of Yaakov wasn't 147, really it was 34 years. Why? Because it was only 34 years that you could call a life. The first 17 years when Yosef was still by him, that was a life. And now these 17 years that he's going to be in Mitzrayim, that's a life, 17 and 17 is 34, but the rest of his life was suffering. Kol shar shanav, the rest of his years, lo yuchayim. Weren't even life here, but sar vera, because they were bitter, they were rough. And what I believe what the Dazakanim is telling us really is an interesting observation. Yaakov Avinu, in the womb, began his suffering. His twin brother Esav was with him the entire time. And the first 63 years of his life was oppression, fighting against Esau in constant battle. He had to leave, literally run away from his parents' house because Esau, his twin brother, wanted to murder him. He then went to Lovan. He slept for 20 years in the fields. He was a shepherd, sleeping in the fields, suffering again. He spent another two year more years traveling to come back to his father. Esau comes out to greet him with 400 men, and Yaakov prepared the battle, mortal combat. Then Dina is captured. She's taken by Shem. Shem and Levi go out to kill the city that defiled their sister. And Yaakov again has to set out to battle to face all the, what he assumed would be the onslaught of the various people. Finally settles down to, to, to a time where he has 17 years of peace till Yosef is stolen from him. His favorite son, his beloved son Yosef is stolen from him, and in that state for 22 years, he's in a veilous, bitter, bitter mourning. Then finally, he comes to Mitzrayim in another 17 years, but Dasakanim explains to us it was only the 17 years when Yosef was with him, and only this last 17 years of Mitzrayim that was really what you consider a life. Everything else was suffering, was pain, couldn't be called a life. And if you think about this Dasakanim, it's rather curious, because... Couldn't Hashem have done a better job? I mean, this is the Bechir Shabavos. This is the greatest one of the Avos. And it wasn't that he just suffered a little bit. He suffered so incredibly powerfully that, again, the Dazakanim says of his 147 years, only 34 could be called a life. And if that isn't curious, I think there's something that might even be more curious. And let's look at what happens. And when he has a moment of tranquility, 
he has his son Yosef, and he's learning with his son. And Parshas Vayeshev opens up with the words Vayeshev Yaakov Beretz Mugurialvi Beretz Canaan. Yaakov sat in the land of Canaan, and Rashi on that pasuk says it's because of what Yaakov did that that response happened. Explains Rashi that Hashem says Sadikim Avakshim Leishev B'Shalva. Yaakov Avinu apparently at that point said to Hashem, "Enough, my suffering is too much. Please." a little tranquility, a little peace. And because he said those words, Hashem said, the tzaddikim want to sit in shalva and tranquility in this world? Lo dayam let tzaddikim, it's not enough for them, Hashem sukkim lomaba, it's not enough what I prepared for them in the world to come, and their reward in the world to come is enough for them, they want peace in this world as well, and therefore explains the Dazakanim, that's why Yosef had to be taken, that's why Yaakov had to suffer additionally, because he asked for tranquility, and Hashem said, it's not enough the world to come, you want this world as well, and that's a big part of the reason why Yaakov Avinu had to suffer. And this is even more curious, because Yaakov Avinu was not asking for luxuries. He wasn't asking for a penthouse apartment, he wasn't asking for jets and boats, he was asking for a little bit of menucha senefesh. You ever try to learn with a headache? You ever try to be Menachem Oval when you have a throbbing toothache? It's very difficult to serve Hashem when you're troubled, when you're worried. He was not asking for pleasure for pleasure's sakes. Yaakovino was certainly not a hedonist. But at the end of the day, the suffering was so acute that he couldn't learn properly, couldn't daven properly, couldn't serve Hashem properly. And he asked Hashem, please, if we could just a, a little bit of peace and quiet. And because of that, Hashem says, oh, it's not good enough for the tzaddikim world to come. But they they want this world as well. They want peace and tranquility. Therefore, Hashem had it arranged that Yosef should be taken and another 22 years Yaakov should suffer. And that sounds very, very difficult to understand. Again, number one, couldn't Hashem have done a better job at creating a life for the tzaddik? And number two, what Yaakov Avinu was asking for was not luxuries, not pleasure. He wasn't asking questions on Hashem, Hashem, why are you making me suffer? He was saying a very simple thing. Hashem, I can't serve you this way. I can't be at my maximum in this state. If it be a little peace, a little I'd be able to be more of what you want, fulfill my purpose more in for what you created me. And Yaakov Avina was not asking for pleasures. He was asking to serve Hashem in a different situation. And Hashem said, oh, it's not good enough that which is waiting for you in the world to come. And want this world as well? Yaakov should have said, I'm not asking for anything other than just a little menuchas and nefesh. What you prepare for me, Hashem, is great. What's Hashem's complaint against Yaakov Avinu? And to understand his complaint, I'd like to share with you a perspective on this world. Alan Dershowitz is a good friend of the Jews, and much of what Alan Dershowitz writes is well worth reading. In the book, The Vanishing American Jew, Alan Dershowitz writes something that is well worth reading not reading. In that book, he describes that he, as a Harvard Law professor, was teaching a course in thinking about the big picture issues of life, almost a comparative religion, and he explained that as part of the course, they began studying the different religions and what each religion added to humanity, added to mankind, and he said they did a full survey, survey, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, they took a full survey of all the various religions and they were studying which one advanced mankind, which ones didn't. 
And at some point he says that a student raised a hand and said, Professor, religion is a way of relating to God, a way of studying God. If we're rating the world's religions, shouldn't we rate God? How did God do at this thing called creating the world? And Alan Dershowitz writes that he agreed. And so the class, with he at the head, stood as judge and jury. How did God do at creating this world? Now, before I spoil the fun and let you know God's rating, I'll share with you first the perspective from Alan Dershowitz's standpoint. On the one hand, there's some beautiful things in this world. There's love, there's friendship, there's poetry, there's sunrises, there's beauty in the world. On the other hand, there's a good bit of suffering. There's poverty, disease, illness, there's death. So on balance, God rates a B-. minus. God didn't fail, but he certainly didn't get an A+. On balance, God rates a B-. And he writes this in the book. Okay. Now let's say I had my opportunity to rate our learned professor. Let's say I could give him a grade for his uh, little social (coughs) experiment over there. I would give him a grade. It would not be an A, mm -mm. not a B, mm, not a C. I would give him a D for dumb. And I'll explain to you why. Imagine I were to pull this pen from my pocket. And I were to say to you, you see this? This is a lousy toothpick. I mean, come on. Whoever designed this toothpick did a, did a terrible job. I mean, look, this clicker thing, who needs that? And this handle thing, but worse than that. Every time I get it back in my, ink, my molars, I get this inky thing all over my mouth. Whoever designed this toothpick did a lousy job. Now, that would be an example of fallacious thinking, of false thinking. Why? Because before you rate the manufacturer, you have to know what they intended that object to do. As a writing implement, it might have been well-crafted. As a toothpick, it might be lousy. But before you rate Bic, you have to know what they intended that object to do. And I believe the same thing holds true over here. If you try to rate God before you know why Hashem created the world, if you try to rate God at how did He do at creating this world, before you have a clear, fundamental understanding as to why Hashem created the world, you're going to come up with some pretty silly ideas, <clears throat> some pretty silly thoughts, and in fact, you may rate God as a B minus or maybe even worse. And I'd like to share with you a mushal, <clears throat> a parable to answer that question. Why did Hashem create us? <clears throat> Why are we here? What is life about? Imagine that you walk into a very exclusive health club. Now, you've never been there before, <clears throat> but you know the basic layout. On the left side is the spa, <clears throat> the right side is the gym. The gym has everything you need to work out, you know, the Nautilus, the equipment you need to get in shape. And left side is a spa, the steam room, the sauna, everything you need to just relax. In any case, you decide it's been a very stressful week. You're heading right to the spa. But as you walk into the health club by mistake, instead of turning left, you turn right. And you see all these red-faced people grunting and sweating and all this equipment. Whoever designed this spa did a terrible job. That is a parable for life. And Mesut Sharma explains to us that when Hashem created the world, Hashem created two worlds. There's this world and the world to come, each with its plan, each with its purpose. And this world is the gym. We were put here to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of I. And when I'm done my job here, my body's put in the ground, I separate, and for eternity I go to the spa. That's where I enjoy everything that I did in this world. But each world, each with its plan, each with its purpose, 
This world is the gym. We're here, put here to grow, to accomplish. The world to come is a place where we enjoy. When you understand that there are two worlds, life fundamentally makes sense. But if you don't understand that there are two worlds, nothing under the sun is going to make sense. But not that you're not going to know the answers. There will be no answers. As a matter of fact, if Alan Dershowitz were honest, and imagining for a moment that he assumes that kind of like Elsie the cow, when Elsie the cow dies, her nephesh just evaporates, she is no longer. Imagine for a moment that when I hit the grave, it's black and it's done, it's over. Meaning, imagine that Hashem created us for this world and this world only. Then I'd like to share with you, Hashem would not rate a B-. minus. Hashem would rate an F for doing a terrible job, for creating many, many things that help man not at all. Pain, suffering, illness, disease. There's so many things that Hashem clearly created that benefit man not at all. But once you understand that there are two worlds, and once you understand that each world has its plan and its purpose, and then you have a perspective and you have an understanding of life. Then you understand that there will be many situations that we will be confronted with in life that serve me no good in this world. But they force me to choose. I either transcend or I crumble, but there's no sitting on the sidelines. Choose I must, and I grow or I shrink. But every situation in life is a challenge. Every situation in life is exactly that, a demand to either grow or to shrink. And many, many situations that you will be in in life do not serve you well in this world, but are the grand opportunity in the laboratory of life, in this gym that we're living in, and they give you the opportunity to grow, to accomplish, to become the great person you can be. And once you understand the two worlds, life itself fundamentally makes sense. And if you don't understand that there are two worlds, again, not much under the sun makes sense at all. But there's one more step that you need to really understand and feel, and that is that we were each given a role to play. And if you'd like a muscle to what it's comparable, a parable, imagine an actor gets a call, <clears throat> famous actor, he gets a call from his agent, and it sounds some, something like this. Listen, Bob, we got this <clears throat> great script. It's a guaranteed Oscar. I'm going to send it by. I'm going to do it, guy. Next day, <clears throat> actor reads through the script. A- <clears throat> agent calls back. We're going to do it, Bob, right? Nope, not doing it. Bob, what, what is it? The other actors will change him out. I'm not doing it. More cash, we'll get more cash, guy. We're going to do it, right? I'm not doing it. But Bob, why not? Why not? It's the part. The part you have me playing. He's a down and out, a, a loser. Yeah, but Bob, that's just the part you're playing. You're going to do, guy, right? I can't stand the whole world seeing me as a luckless down and out. The actor hangs up the phone. That conversation never happened. Because anyone going to the theater understands that the actor is given a role to play. He's given a script. And the actor is judged based on one criteria. This was your part to play. How well did you play it? If his part to play was an idiot savant, but he played it well, he'll win accolades, he'll win awards. If his part to play is the most successful human being in the world, but he plays his parts poorly, the critics will rip him to shreds. The actor is given a part to play, and he's judged on one criteria. This was your role. How well did you play it? And I believe that's an apt parable for life. Before you and I were created, Hashem said, this is the life that you shall be leading. 
in this generation, into this family. You'll be put into this body with this type of temperament, this level of intelligence, this level of physical strength, this amount of charisma. Go out there, ford those streams, climb those mountains, become the great person that you can become. But each of us will give in vastly different life settings. Each of us are but actors on a stage. My role, your role, each role is different and none of us are judged compared to one another. I'm not compared to you. You're not compared to him. She's not compared to Sadiqim Sadekas who lived hundreds of years earlier. Each of us are given the most demanding, exacting standard. When we've done our job, Hashem asks us one question, how much of you did you become? How well did you play your part? When you understand that, then you understand fundamentally that life makes sense. And then you understand that Hashem rates an A-plus for creating the perfect environment. The perfect gym is working out fun. It sure should be. But there's also a lot of pain. There's also a lot of strain. And that is life. This is the gym we're here to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of me. When I'm done my job here, then I go to the spa of the world to come, Olam Haba. That's where I am forever, what I shape myself into. Two worlds, each with its plan, each with its purpose. But this world is the gym. Each of us were given different strengths, talents, abilities, and none of us are compared to one another. Each of us are compared to one single criteria, the standard of you. These were your strengths. These were your talents. This was your role to play. How well did you play it? But there's one more step that we need to understand. And to understand this step, let me ask you a question. And that question is, how good is Hashem at doing that which Hashem does? A fair question. How good is Hashem? How capable is Hashem? How good is Hashem at doing that which Hashem does? So, if you're not quite sure, look about the universe. You'll see systems, complexity, harmony, integration, a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, planets, plants, electricity, gravity. It's a rather complex world. But sometimes you have to study one little, little, tiny part of the world to appreciate the capacity of our Creator. Let's study something called sight. You see, I see. I open my eyes, I see. Of course, I see every day. I always open my eyes, I always see. Of course, it's, it's a given. But if you focus on sight, if you think about sight, you'll see it's one of the most incredibly complex systems we could ever imagine. When I open my eyes, the light enters, and it hits the back of the eye, the retina, some 130 million cells that are chemically reactive. Those cells react to the light. They then somehow translate that chemical reaction into an electrical impulse, They send that electrical impulse along the optic nerve, some 3 million cells that act like a trunk cable. They bring it to the part of the brain, and somehow, wonderfully, I see. When I open my eyes and see, I don't realize the complexity of what's going on. The muscles of my eyes have to focus, the light has to enter, the retina has to be reactive, the optic nerve has to carry it, has to bring it to the right part of the brain. Let's focus a little bit on sight, because I think as we dig into it, it might even seem a little bit more complex. Take your finger and place it right in front of your nose. I think what you'll notice is, as you bring it closer and closer to your nose, suddenly your good, clear vision becomes double. And and as you bring it really close, you're seeing two images. Now, why is that? 
the reason for that is because actually you have two eyes and the images that are heading to the back of your brain really are two. Each image is about two and a half inches apart and each image sees things from a different standpoint. You see, if you only had one eye, you would still see, but you'd lack dimension of depth. <clears throat> you wouldn't be able to tell movement. It'd be very difficult for you to really distinguish things. You're given two separate versions of things, each image about two and a half inches apart, and each is sent to the back of your brain. Now, it's interesting because your eyes have to be super coordinated. <clears throat> if your left eye moves left and your right eye doesn't, you're going to get a very confused image. Your eyes move in perfect tracking, perfectly track, but that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is, let's say we were somehow able to look inside a person's brain as they're watching things. Here's the color. What color? What color would you see? If you were able to peer into a person's brain as he's watching something, what color would you see? The answer is you wouldn't see color because there's no image in the brain. What happens is the light hits the retina, it's converted into an electrical signal, sent along the optic nerve, then sent to a part of the brain that begins interpreting, and your brain creates an image. It takes old images, different stored images, processes, and creates in the movie screen of your brain an image. But here's the intense part of it. Two separate images, vastly different. Your brain combines them, molds them, makes them nice and together. You don't see things cross-eyed two and a half inches apart so that you're all confused. You see them as one perfect image, and it happens in hyperspeed. And if you study depth, and you study dimensions, and you study what it's like for a person who regains his sight, if you study a person who lost sight at, let's say, age three, Michael May is such a person. At age three, he became blind, and at age 35, they figured out a method for him to see again, and he regained his sight. And if you read that book, what you find is very frightening, because he was now able to see. His visual acuity was perfect, but he couldn't distinguish things at all. Effectively, he was largely blind. When he went to the supermarket, he couldn't see cereal boxes, because there's so much visual stimuli, and so much things coming at you, until you learn how to focus, until your brain learns how to take the part, different segments and different things, see the edge and not see the other part, until your brain becomes the hyper <clears throat> microcomputer that it is, your brain will not be able to see, and vision doesn't work. When you're young, your brain is plastic, and it's easily able to do that, but it's a certain stage, and if you hit adulthood before your brain really became <clears throat> that facile at it, it never happens. And if you study sight, you'll see it's an incredibly complex thing. But that's but one part of the human body, one part of the universe. So here's the observation. It's very clear that Hashem is quite capable. It's clear that Hashem is very, very good at doing that which Hashem does. So I want you to imagine for a minute the following. Imagine that Hashem were to create a world for one purpose. Imagine that Hashem were to create a world for the purpose of you having pleasure. Let's say Hashem said, I want to make a world with one single purpose, and that's for you to enjoy. How pleasurable would that experience be? 
Well, so again, assuming that Hashem is quite capable, I have to imagine the intensity of the pleasure, the unending pleasure would be beyond description. Levels after levels, enveloped in different flavors, different widths, beyond any human dimension of understanding. Because Hashem is very, very good at doing that which Hashem does. And the Mesut Hashem explains to us that Hashem did create such a world. Hashem is the mative, Hashem is the giver. And Hashem created the entire world to give to mankind. But Hashem put us in this world first to grow, to accomplish, to gain our world to come. And the world to come is a place of pleasure, Hashem, and to enjoy Hashem's presence, to enjoy the ultimate spiritual pleasure. But that world was designed with one purpose in mind, for man to enjoy the ultimate enjoyment, the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate joy. And that world is a world of unending, unimaginable pleasures. You and I will have great difficulty seeing that. I live in a very physical world, very tactile. I live in a world of touch, a feel. If I can't touch, I can't feel it. It's hard for me to even imagine it. But you see, that's you and I. Yaakov Avinu was spiritually developed beyond anything we could imagine, and he was a Ben Olam Haba. And he saw himself in every moment of his life as an opportunity to grow, saw every moment of his life as being in the gym, and he recognized that the vast wealth that he had in the world to come was astonishing. And I believe that's the answer of his Dasakanim. Hashem said to Yaakov, yes, you see it. <clears throat> yes, you recognize it, but it's not clear enough to you. If you fully, fully understood that the world to come is so incredibly pleasurable, if you understood that every moment of your life you're growing, you're accomplishing, you're gaining more, and that understanding would fill you with such joy that what you're living through now wouldn't be suffering. If you watch a man who trains for the marathon, he goes through a lot of pain, but he enjoys it, and he does it willingly. But it hurts. It's cold, and it hurts, and you're pushing, and you're pushing, and you're pushing more, and you're pushing more, and you're tired, but you're still doing it, and you're loving it. Why? Because you have a goal. But that goal really is flighty. That goal is a this-world goal. Every moment of Yaakov Avino's life was growing, was accomplishing, changing the essence of him, changing the world itself. And because of that, he recognized and understood that his world to come was unimaginable. But Hashem said, as much as you recognize it, apparently you don't fully recognize it. Because if you fully, fully felt it, if you fully realized it, you wouldn't be asking for tranquility because your life now would be tranquility. Your life now would be wonderful. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's hard. But it's wonderful. Bring it on. If you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling strained, if you're feeling it's too much, it's because you lost sight. You and I aren't asked to have that kind of clarity but Yaakov Avinu was. And if fundamentally you'd like to understand what Hashem expected from Yaakov Avinu, I'll give you a very simple muscle. Sheldon Adelson was a very wealthy man. He began as a regular immigrant's kid, but a very, very entrepreneurial fellow. He began his first business at 12, sold that business, bought another business, expanded. Bottom line is, by the time he was in his 40s, he began Comdex, one of the largest computer shows and then he opened up a hotel to house that show. Before very long, he owned the Sands Venetian Corporation in Las Vegas, in various places. And Forbes magazine loves to count people's money. And Forbes magazine writes that in 2004, Sheldon Adelson was a very, very wealthy man. But then Sheldon Adelson did something interesting. He took the Sands Venetian public. 
He took <clears throat> San Venetian public, and in about a year and a half's time, his personal wealth skyrocketed by 750%. He went from being a very wealthy man to one of the wealthiest men alive. And Forbes magazine gives a parable. If you'd like to know <clears throat> what his wealth was like <clears throat> during that time period, they estimate that during that year and a half time period, he was earning approximately a million dollars an hour. Every hour, he was a million dollars richer, a million dollars richer, a million dollars richer. And I want you to imagine what life would be like. Imagine that I was earning a million dollars an hour. Okay, <clears throat> open the Gemara to Dafayomi, close the Gemara, a million dollars richer. Whoa, nice. Take a nice little Shabbos shluf, wake up. Two million dollars richer. Wow, life is astonishing. Life is wonderful. A million dollars an hour. Let's go. That was Yaakov Avinu's life. He understood that every moment, every challenge was growth, was accomplishment. He understood he's racking it up for eternity, but not in silly things like money that's passing and has no true value in ultimate eternity. And Yaakov Avinu was on a level that Hashem said, you should feel that. You should recognize that. And therefore, your life itself should be extremely pleasurable. Yes, difficult, but with joy in your heart and a tremendous satisfaction. If you're suffering so that you say, Hashem, let it stop, and that means you don't see the world to come clearly. It's not enough for you, the world to come. If you clearly saw the world to come, it would change your this world as well. And again, while we're not asked to be Yaakov Avinu, I believe that this Dasakinim has tremendous relevance to us. Because I understand that every word of Torah is a mitzvah in and of itself. If I understand that every bracha is an accomplishment, every time I smile to a neighbor, every time I act nice to my spouse, every time I help my child or my friend, whatever it may be, that's another piece of eternity, another growth, another shining diamond in my crown. And if we had a clear vision of the world to come, we would be filled with tremendous joy and our life would have a very different tone to it. Would all of life be wonderful? No, there's still going to be stomach aches and toothaches and pains. But let's go. Wow, I love life. And if you understand life, and you understand that we're here to grow and accomplish, and you understand the value of every situation, you understand the value of every challenge, there's a tremendous lust for life, a love for life. Let's go. There's a simcha sachayim because you recognize I'm getting rich and richer and richer and richer. A million dollars an hour, far more than that. Far more than just money. My wealth is increasing, but it's me. I'm accomplishing, I'm doing, and life itself is beautiful. And I believe, again, that this Dasa Kingdom has tremendous relevance to us. But <clears throat> there's only one little problem. And that is we make three mistakes about the world to come. You see, the first mistake we make about the world to come is we have this sort of version of the world to come. Oh, it's going to be great. We'll all be angels in white. You'll have white wings. I'll have fluffy white wings. And we'll dance together in glee and harmony forever and ever and ever. I'd like to share with you, Mitzvah Shem will all be there. I sure hope to be there. I hope so. But what the Mitzvah Shem explains to us is we're not going to all be just the same angels in white. And there'll be some people who shine like the sun in midday, some people are uh, uh, some people are, uh, some people are diminutive, some people are malformed. There'll be vast differences between people. 
here we're about the same. If I go to the gym and work out, I become a little more muscular, a little bit more fit, but it's a physical body. That's because physical growth is contained, is limited. Spiritual growth is unbounded, unbridled. And there'll be some people who are just, eh, eh. some people are good, some people are amazing, some people are astonishing, and some people shine brilliantly beyond description. And many people that I knew, many people, regular guys, regular people, will be unbelievably great. I'll be, what did I do? Where did I go wrong? Why did I, why did I waste my time? And it'll be true, Mitzvah will all be there, but it's not so simple that we'll all be angels in white. <clears throat> Explains Mr. Sharm, it's a cold baldas. It's obvious to any thinking person that the Madregos, the levels in the world to come, are given out according to one thing. How hard you work, how much effort you put in, how much you use this world for this purpose that you were given it to, to grow, to accomplish. And if a person works and grows, learns, davens, serves Hashem as it's supposed to, you become greater and greater, bigger and bigger. But if you kind of flatline through life, just go through the motions, whatever, that's what you end up being. But the vast differences... And the incredible chasm, the incredible <clears throat> differences, worlds of difference between human beings in the world to come is almost unimaginable. So the first mistake we make about the world to come is we think it's all going to be good. We'll all be angels and white. There'll be vast, vast differences. What I accomplished, I'll be tremendously joyful about. <clears throat> but what I didn't accomplish and what I could have accomplished, and when I see others who did and I say to myself, I was so much big, I could have been so much greater. I... It's not so simple where each person will be. That's the first mistake. But the second mistake we make is that, listen, world to come is nice, but it doesn't really apply to me because I'm not going to (laughs) die. You know, I have no real serious intentions of dying. I get a little older, maybe a little older still, but like death, me in the box, it's not really going to happen. And as strange as it sounds, every human being lives in this state of delusion that I will live forever. Now, don't get me wrong. I could quote for you the statistical rates of death for people of my age and my health, and I could be very aware in theory that every human being dies, but to actually see my mortality, to actually envision the end of my days is not so simple. And if you'd like to try a great Musr exercise, put yourself in that box, either literally or figuratively, Imagine that it's you at the next funeral. Imagine that it's you. Imagine that you're in the box and all your friends are there and everyone comes and gathered and the rabbi gets up to say those things that he says. But see it, feel it, touch it. In the book Stop Surviving, Start Living, I wrote an entire chapter about it and I knew that book was what I wanted to say when on the 10th time that I wrote that chapter, there were tears in my eyes. Because if you feel it and touch it, it's a life-changing concept. Oh, but Rabbi, I don't want to get depressed. It won't get you depressed. The only way you get depressed about death is if you don't understand life. See, if life is this party, and the party ends, oh, hey, it's terrible, and the party ends. <clears throat> but if life has a purpose, we are to grow, to accomplish. This is the gym. Death is not depressing. Death is galvanizing. Let's go. It gets me moving. <clears throat> it gets me up in the morning. If the first problem is we think we'll all be the same, angels and white, Hashem is so forgiving, it'll be all good. It's not so simple, it'll be vastly different. The second problem is that I can't actually see my mortality. I have to really focus on it. But the third problem is probably the biggest problem. And the third problem is that it doesn't really matter because I'll be dead. <laughs> I'll be dead. 
Meaning, listen, Rabbi, all the stuff about the world to come and mitzvahs and Torah, I get it, but it doesn't matter because I'll be dead. I'll be dead. My neshama, my distant cousin, whatever, you know, I'll be there. And, but I'll be dead, so it doesn't really matter. And that mistake that we human beings make is so fundamental. We think about death like going to sleep. Like, Harvey was a good man. He's in his final resting place. Rest in peace, Harvey. And we think of death like going to sleep. Now, sleep means I'm not there. Imagine you break your arm, you're in pain, throbbing pain, and take Tylenol, Prickadone, to every imagine painkiller. Finally, 3 o'clock, you fall asleep. I'm not there, so my arm doesn't bother me. If you think about death like going to sleep, then you're right. Who cares? I'll be not there. My neshama, my distant cousin, my alter ego, some splinted down version of me, but I'll be dead, so it doesn't really matter. It explains the resolution that you're making one mistake. Death is not like going to sleep. Death is like waking up. He explains, imagine I walk into the room and I take off my coat. I'm in the room. The coat is the outer shell. I take it off, I put it on the hook, and I'm in the room. And explains the resolution that Zuhimisa, that's death. My body is the coat. It's put in the ground. And I separate, but it's I. I, the one who thinks, I, the one who feels, I, the one who remembers, I, the one inside, leave my body behind, and every memory of my existence comes flooding back with absolute acuity, with total clarity. I see, I understand, I recognize, but now with a whole different set of eyes. Not limited by the physical body, not limited and trapped with a nefesha bahami, an animal soul that blocks me and occludes my vision. I'm now able to understand, and every mitzvah that I did is so precious, so phenomenally valuable. And every Avera that I did, I see it as something that damaged me and made me diminutive, small, crippled. Then my understanding changes. And that one aha moment, when you get this fact that it's not my distant cousin, not my alter ego, not my neshama that'll be there in the world to come, it's me. I, I the one who thinks, I the one who feels, I the one who tells my arms and legs to move, my body is the outer shell, I'm the one inside. If I yell at you, if I scream at you, who's embarrassed? It's not your arms, your head, your leg, your chest, it's you. If I give you great news, and you have tremendous joy, who feels the joy you do? That's the part that lives on. And I believe these three mistakes are very, very crippling. Again, the first mistake, assuming that it will all be good, be there in the world to come. It will be good in it, Hashem. But vast, vast differences. Hashem put us in this world to grow and accomplish, and Hashem gave us so much ability and so much time, and Hashem gave us the capacity to change the essence of I, and every single action, every thought, every conversation changes me, molds me, shapes me, and all day long I'm either growing or shrinking. And this world is the gym. And Hashem is very, very capable of creating that gym in exactly the manner that will put you in the place where you can reach the ultimate greatness that you can become. Not every situation in life is pleasant. It's not all one walk in the park. But every life situation is a challenge, an opportunity to grow, to accomplish, to become great. And when my body's put in the ground, I separate, and forever I am what I shape myself into. Number one, we're not all angels in white. Number two, it really will happen. I was once a young boy, then a teenager, 
and then an adult. Then I had my first child. Then my child got married. And I'm on that continuum. And seeing yourself on that continuum called life, and then realizing that that continuum continues. And then you get a little bit older, a little bit older, and a little bit older, and go to an old age home. And watch the 80-year-olds and say to yourself, I will be there. Mitzvah Shem. Mitzvah Shem, I'll make it at 80. Maybe even 85. Maybe. Maybe 90. But that's it. There's a certain point when there's a case. It's over. It's done. I leave my body behind. And that's the third mistake we make. It's not my distant cousin. Not my alter ego. It's I. The one inside. The one who thinks. The one who feels. The one who remembers. I am there forever great or forever not, based on what I shaped myself into. I think this Dasakanim is eye-opening, because as great as Yaakov Avinu was, there was a certain lack of clarity. Yes, he realized every moment of life was an opportunity to grow, and yes, he used every moment as a precious moment, but he suffered. And Hashem says, if you're suffering, what that means is you lost sight. Yaakov Avinu, you have the clarity you have the understanding to see the world to come and see that every moment of your life is another treasure, another million dollars in the bank, another diamond. And if you would have focused on that, you would have seen the value. Yes, life would have still been difficult, but there would have been such joy in your heart. The fact that you turn to Hashem and say, Hashem, please give me a little tranquility. What that means is you lost sight of the world to come. Because if you saw it, there'd be such joy, such happiness. And I believe that's what the Asakanim is saying. It's not that Hashem isn't capable. Hashem is very, very capable. And the world to come was created for that purpose, for man to have pleasure. And this world was created for its purpose. This is the gym. Put into this world, given all the talents, all the abilities, the perfect life setting that I need. You were given your role to play. I was given my role to play. And each of us are judged by one standard, the standard of I. How much could I have done? How much could I have accomplished? How much of me did I become? And when you understand this, you understand life. You understand that God doesn't rate a B minus. God rates an A plus. Because there's this world and the world to come. And we are but actors on that stage called life. And when you understand this, you also understand the incredible value of every moment of life. Because every moment of life changes me, molds me, makes me into what I'll be for eternity. Not every moment of life is a grand pleasure. There is a world for that purpose. That's the world to come. But every moment of life is precious, is valuable. And when you understand that, A, you understand life. And B, there's a tremendous love of life. Let's go. You understand why Hashem created you. You understand the value of a moment. You understand I can change myself, change those around me. And with that sense, you wake up in the morning with a tremendous lust of life. And you understand the great value and the great accomplishments that you can reach in the time you have here.